silence Maybe God doesn't hear at all And the weight overtakes the violence And we watch as the giants fall We are not gonna let it end this This is Ben. And this is Comic Belief, an irreverent search for the reverent in a secular multiverse. Today is Wonder Woman. So Wonder Woman's a character we both respect and like. Um, I've enjoyed a lot of the Wonder Woman stuff. Most of what I know about her came out of the DC animated universe, which is awesome. And the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons, which are awesome and really, I mean, they're, they're as good as the old, like, 90s Batman. Because DC knows how to make a cartoon. Yeah. God bless them. When, when somebody's drawing the characters, they are fine. <laughs> um, and we, I, I think we're approaching a day with um, a lot of background. We, we've looked into some stuff. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's not really a surprise that there's so much information. Yeah. Uh, because she's been around for 100 years, obviously. Yeah. Um, not quite 100, but... No, that's true. 1940s, so yeah. she's been around 70 years. 70. Um, not bad for an old broad. <laughs> not bad at all, <laughs> yeah. She looks good for her age, yes, but she she's sort of immortal. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think my... I mean, I always knew who Wonder Woman is, but I don't think I really knew anything about her... Um, until I saw the movie. And I'll be honest that initially I was disappointed in the movie. I didn't hate it by any means. Um, it just didn't knock my socks off. Admittedly, I fell asleep during it the first time, but also that was like our anniversary dinner and I had perhaps had too much wine before. They, they gave us champagne at this restaurant because yeah. we told them it was our anniversary and we I think they were like... <laughs> they, champagne and yeah. then, you know, a glass or two of wine I had that, with a meal, but... Um, I think I just got sleepy. You also so, fell asleep in Dark Knight? Yeah. So, which is just to say, like, you sleeping sleep. is not necessarily an indication. I fell asleep during of, Giant the first two times I saw it, and that's yeah. one of my favorite movies, so. Right. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily a reflection on it, but um, having watched it again and revisited it, I have a much stronger appreciation for it this time around. Yeah, I think um, they put a lot of really interesting stuff on the table, mm -hmm. I think we both have comments about how they what they do with the stuff that's yeah. put on the table, but uh, I, I think it's fun to talk about it. Oh, sure. sure. And I think, like, just the her history um, and character development, not even character development, but just her history and how she was developed as a character um, by her creator is um, a really good and interesting, fascinating story. Yeah, and we should probably say creators True. there. True, yeah. So we, we did uh, we, we did some research here. We uh, we watched the what's the movie called? Uh, Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women. Right. So that's it's a very Hollywood version of the life of three people. Um, right. And I had read the book uh, The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore um, a couple of years ago, and so it's not like all of that information is not right. At, in my brain pan right now, but the movie Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women, I don't know is necessarily based off of the book, but it's the same story. It's about uh -huh. uh, Marsden and his uh, women. <laughs> I mean, his being sort of a genitive of association and right. not possession there. Right. Uh, yes. 
Although, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So there's, and I think, so this story's been pretty broadly told, but we'll give you the basics if you haven't heard. Um, so Wonder Woman was developed by Professor William Marston, and he, he wrote under a pseudonym of Charles Mouton, I Moulton. think. Because he was Char- uh, William Moulton Marston. Ah, so there you go. Charles Moulton was his pseudonym. Yeah, and and the the original idea was to put some of his philosophical ideas into comics, and it, so he had been a professor of psychology mm-hmm. or some related field in the early 20th century, and had developed something called disc theory about how human beings interact with each other. Yeah. So this is very similar to like a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or one of these personality tests yeah. that corporations use. And actually, disc theory still exists yeah. in some form or other. Right. When I started my job, my current job, 12 years ago, uh, our former director made us all, because there's a group of us that were hired at approximately the same time, uh, and she made us take this test. Like, looking back, I'm like, oh, we took a disc test. and Yeah. Yeah. That was very... Interesting. <laughs> so it's fun because the modern version of DISC has, uh, I, I mean, each, you know, it's an acronym. And, and so um, it's like dominating, influencing, steadiness, and comprehensiveness or something, compatibility. Something like that. Because uh, the original ones were dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. And they have, like, modern takes now um, right. on those. And the whole dominance, inducement, submission, compliance stuff sounds way uh, more libidinous yeah. than, you know, influence and conscientiousness or whatever they are now. Right. Um, Some things still say compliance. Um, yeah, there's, there's a number of different... Right, there's a lot of different... Uh, right, steadiness. So... Uh, Anyway, Professor Marston had this theory, and Professor Marston was was married to another professor named Elizabeth Marston, yep. who was sort of equally educated. Uh, the movie version, at least, presents her as sort of not having the same PhD he had, only because they wanted to give it to her through a sister school, and she was sort of holding out to get it from Harvard because yeah. she had done the same work as he had. And then they, they sort of wind up losing their jobs before she ever wins that battle, and they lose their jobs because they they open their marriage to a third person. Right, who is a student. Right. And research assistant of theirs. Yeah. And um, she was a graduate student, I think. Yeah. So a, an adult right. woman yeah, who I've, has her degree. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're not sort of seducing an 18-year-old or something. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting watching it in, at least in the film version. Um, and I feel like it's... Slightly portrayed differently in the book, Jill Lepore book, um, because it's like, even though all her name's Olive Byrne, um, she was the niece of Margaret Sanger, um, who, who is a suffragette or not suffragette, but um, a proponent of contraception. Sure. Okay. Um, this might have been before the. This would be before the pill. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, she was definitely a big uh-huh. proponent of um, contraception and birth control in general. The way that you know, like. Olive clearly is an adult, so she has, you know, she can consent, has agency, but it is a different power dynamic because they're her bosses. Right, they're in charge of her academics, they're in charge of her employment. Yeah, and Um, then, like, just them being older and um, already married. Yeah, they have a... uh It's just an interesting power dynamic, and I don't want to take away her agency, but it's just... um, 
There are things that we would call problematic if someone just sort of came to, like, one of us professionally and said, like, oh, by the way, like, I've found a consenting third adult to join my marriage. Yeah. As a priest in a church, there's other factors, too. (laughs) Exactly. um, Like, we don't, (laughs) yeah. I mean, Each their own, like, as long as everybody's consenting, whatever, do your thing. Uh, Might not be my thing. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like hedging. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, there's. We're not going to get into the. Um, I, I think what I would say. Of right. I, I think what we could say podcast. is the the movie presents it very much as if the three of them are just trying to live their life, and the whole world's against them living the life that they're trying yes. to have together, yeah. and there's no other complications. Right. And I, I think that's a little Hollywood, and yes. I think that's a little yeah. rosy eyed, and yeah. I think. Um, you know, the, the movie also is sort of making them the metaphor for disc theory where, like, one of the wives is dominant and, and well, the, the wife yeah. is dominant and Olive is the submissive and yeah. he is sort of... But by the end of the film, like, as he's sort of dying at a youngish middle age, yeah. like, he sort of match makes the two of them and says, like, you have to forgive each other right. and go on with our love. they did ultimately live together right, out the rest right. of their lives. Uh, their family, their children would say they were just, like, sisters, but... Yeah, and these were real people. Like, we don't need to. I don't mean to sit in judgment of them. I I do think the film is is probably presenting something a little fantastical. Um, Because even if it's even if if you want to take a position that everything they did was healthy, like healthy relationships have rocky patches, and coming out of a, a culture where each of them would have internalized that they were transgressing marriage vows and things, there there would have been turbulence. Yeah. Like, the the sort of only turbulence is, like, external factors. Yeah. Like, oh, no, the university wants to fire us. Or, oh, no, like, yeah. Olive's fiancé is mad about it. And, um, yeah. And the film just was very on the nose. It was very, uh... Yeah, it was, oh, I mean... It was just... They, they, they did a lot of... <laughs> it wasn't so... Tell not show. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and the the other kind of fun factor was they used the systolic lie detector. So. Yeah, because Marston was the inventor of Mars. Both Marstons, both mm-hmm. um, him and Elizabeth, were the inventors of the lie detector test, which comes into play with. What yeah, and my understanding is like criminal courts of law don't use this because it's no, not reliable. Not really. But they um and, and the film sort of does this wonderful like first of all the two of like the two Marstons can't invent it together because they're missing a piece until Olive like says, well, what about this? Like, he, he doesn't care about the question he's answering, so of course it's not moving. And right. like, yeah. So, ha, ha, ha. Like, they needed a third piece. Like, they yeah. needed a third mind. They yeah. needed a third soul in their mirror, you know. And, and then, like, their actual confessions of love to each other all happen on the lie detector, of course. Yeah. Which I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, maybe that happened. But uh, anyway. Um, and, of course, there's all sorts of, like, fan theories looking back about lie detectors and Wonder Woman's signature tool, the lasso of truth. Yeah. Um, you know, she literally ties people up and then they can't lie to her. Yeah. So, um, you know, th- this psychologist into dominant submission dynamics ha- has a heroine who ties people up and makes them tell the truth, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so... Um... But all this has to do with the creation of Wonder Woman is Marston based Wonder Woman sort of off of these two women. Yeah. And I don't know if this is would ever have been a something he actually said to describe the women in his life. Um, but in the film, he describes Olive as beautiful, guileless, kind, pure of heart, and Elizabeth as brilliant, ferocious, hilarious, and a grade A bitch. Um, he says this to her face. Yeah. A compliment. Yeah. Right. Um, but you definitely see that in Diana slash Wonder Woman. I, I don't know that early on she would have been 
considered a grade A bitch. No, I think she, but just like a strong pinnet. Yeah, although she's also got a lot of submission to her mm-hmm. be- because part of Marson's theory is that the best kind of life for a human being to live is sort of, quote, a submission to a loving authority. Yeah. So you might be any of these disc things like dominant or inducing or submissive or compliant, but the place you'll be happiest by Marston's estimation is submitting to a loving authority. Mm-hmm. And he, he sort of thought men shouldn't rule the world because they, they, they sort of have created a culture where they think being dominant is the most important thing, but they're actually not happy dominating. They would be happier submitting to a loving authority and he was trying to educate people uh, with his theory so that, that they would shift to, to cultural expectations of submitting to loving authority. Right. And at least it was interesting. The Professor Marston in the Wonder Woman movie kind of put this out as like he, he was like walking by a, basically a sex shop one day. Like they've got corsets and things. Yeah. And anyway, he, he buys some pictures of like poses that, that – you know, his, his, the the two ladies sort of say, these are pornography, these are illegal. And he says, but they, they're pictures and they're, like, getting across more of a message than, like, writing or words would. And he, he decides to go off and, and put his message into comic books and in a way that will, like, get it out there and, and teach people this this philosophy of disc, right? right. Of, of understanding all these these domination and submission forces and and realizing like oh women should rule the world through making everyone else submit to loving authority right because he wanted to uh, a new kind of superhero that like fought instead of with fists she fought with love right right and um she was the like kind of propaganda for a new type of woman who should rule the world yeah so. now i i was reading a a book by someone named Mike Madrid called Supergirls, which which was a book of Megan's that I I finally picked up to like read. That I hadn't prepping. finished. Yeah. I hadn't gotten gotten past the first chapter. I think. Yeah. Um, so I read most of that today, and it's awesome. Happy Not to recommend it. I don't it. want to read it. I just haven't had time to read it. Yeah. So. But he goes into the, the the version of the story that he tells is that Max Gaines, who was an old comic producer in the forties. Uh, heard Marston talking about um, his ideas or using fiction to to promote them or something. And basically Max Gaines pulled Marston in, where where the movie kind of makes Marston the guy who's like shopping around his idea until finally he gets someone who will print it. And um, Max Gaines is sort of this jaded, blustery guy who's like, all right, I'll give you a shot, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, the actual account is probably, I, I'm assuming Mike Madrid did a little more research and, and or, or that the movie at least is kind of presenting a Hollywood version that lets Marston be a little more heroic. But yeah, so the, anyway, Wonder Woman was created partly as a foil to Batman and Superman, who were early, like, male, you know, meet out justice with your fist kind of heroes, mm-hmm. um, and partly because Marston really wanted to sell people on these ideas. So the early Golden Age Wonder Woman books have tons of like dominant submission stuff they have a lot of like like, explicitly she'll like talk about people needing to submit to loving authority like she herself will or she'll like force her opponents (laughs) to and she'll tie them up and yeah before we get into wonder woman's background we want to talk about our own disc yeah, sure, let's do it. We both took the test, but we haven't revealed... We, we thought it would be fun to do yeah. an on-air reveal of our scores to each yeah. other. We, we also are pretty sure that we are not going to be surprised. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, it doesn't matter. 
how submissive. <laughs> I'll go first. Okay. I, uh, so I, I think this is interesting because mine are in disc order. Ah. So I scored 39% dominance, wow. 37% influence, and then 12% apiece on steadiness and compliance in these updated terms. Um, and I honestly think I, I'm probably more influence steadiness than this reflects, mm -hmm. but I, I'm in a profession that expects me to make a lot of decisions yeah. and give people a lot of advice. Yeah, I wouldn't say that you're dominant, you're decisive. I mean, and, like, maybe that's just yeah. using more modern terms, but, like, you're, I don't feel like... Right, I would dominant not... Dominant is such a loaded term that... Yeah. yeah. And, and I would agree with that. I, and, like, my Myers-Briggs letters are way INFP. My, my TF are close on Myers-Briggs, mm -hmm. and my IE are close, except I'm, I'm extroverted in the sense of not being shy, which helps if you're a priest. Did you go any further into... Um, like the types, the named types. I didn't look at the type names. So what were your two highest ones? Uh, D and I. The seeker. You know what you want out of life, and you have the determination and commitment to achieve it. Living life at a fast pace, you can be easily bored by routine and the daily grind. When you see an opportunity, you're usually the first one to pounce. You're also highly influential and make for a strong leader thanks to your drive, charm, and desire to push the boundaries to find success. Hmm. Also, if I catch the golden snitch, 150 points right. to Gryffindor. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my yeah. results were, and I took like different tests and I got pretty much the same. Uh, definitely highest on S. Yeah. Um, which I prefer steadiness over submission, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Would you be happy to accept the term submissive if someone <laughs> well, else gave it? <laughs> I submit to it. Um, which is funny because 12 years ago, that's also what I got. Um, and then I had... Next highest, only slightly higher, uh, was compliance, followed by influence, and then my only 5% dominance. Um, which, what's funny is my uh, type is... Da -da -da, the technician, which is literally my job title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every personality, that's SC, those are my two highest. Um, every person, personality type has a particular environment it thrives in, and none more so than this one. You're reliable, thorough, and highly capable but you require calm and steady surroundings to be at your best. You won't cause trouble for anyone, though your cool demeanor can make you appear aloof and with withdrawn. Be careful that your desire for a peaceful life doesn't lead you to be overly compliant. Hmm. Which, I, some of those things are true. I also, the whole, like, uh, you won't cause trouble for anyone. Like, I don't like to cause trouble, but I will, like, stand up for myself, and I have a stubborn streak a mile long, but... Yeah, you, um, you've got that... Um... You've got that grudge-holding capacity. Oh, yeah. I got that from my mom. <laughs> yeah. That does sound like you. I mm -hmm. mean, so, I mean, these things are a little bit like horoscopes, right? Oh, yeah. Like, some of these like, things are... And I, I love personality tests. I love um, yeah. Myers-Briggs stuff. Like, it's... I take everything with a grain of salt, but I just find it really interesting. Cause usually because the things they're speaking at are just, like, human nature things. Right. And so, sort of, same with horoscopes. Like, generally, if you get a horoscope... It's just sort of practical life advice, and so you can right. be like, "Oh my God, it's speaking to me," because it's gonna speak to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, it's fun, and like, I I don't think there's any harm in. I, I remember in online dating, which, which is where we met, yeah. that like, I think ninety percent of profiles say something like, "I like to go out, but sometimes I want to stay in." And yeah. It's like, do yes. you? <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. Yeah. yeah. Also, I probably wrote that. Whereas I said, like, very specifically, that I realized I was an old 
like an 80 year old trapped in a 30 year old's body because one night I discovered I was wearing my grandma's old house coat. I was eating soup and knitting and watching movies. And I and said, I... yes. <laughs> yeah. That. So. Uh huh. But I also cool. like to go out with my friends. So that's disc. Um, and, and that's us by disc. And, you know, like whatever, yeah. like, ooh, the opposites attract and. It, we're making it work, yep. so um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I I don't think that the Marston version of psychology is particularly taken seriously, but I think we both like the idea, just generally as a principle, that there are things wrong with patriarchy, mm-hmm. and that there are things wrong with any group of people dominating another group of people. Uh, without a, a strong level of health, trust, relationship, yeah. vulnerability, those kind of things. Yeah. And, you know, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to st- start a relationship that includes a disc dynamic or just about any kind of dynamic. Yeah. And, like, we love the idea of a hero who, who wins with love and, like, restraint both of their own capacities and, and by restraining villains. Um and this sort of original vision of Wonder Woman as an ambassador and as a uh, a lover of peace and love and care. Like, th- these were cool thoughts to sort of yeah. um, insinuate into the very early days of comics. So yes. Let's talk a bit about the characters' origins. Yeah. So, um, number one, like, Greek mythology had Amazons. Like, right. thousands of years ago yeah. in the Greek pantheon of myths, um... The myth of Amazons was uh, warrior women created by Ares, the god of war, and they lived, in theory, on an island alone by themselves somewhere, alone, which is to say without men, and they would cut off one of their breasts to be able to use a bow and arrow, like, better, without, you know, bumping into it, and... um, you know, there's plenty of, like, psychology and mythology and, like, research that sort of describes it as, like, oh, look, they've been, ha- like, half turned into a man on the top. And um, this sort of androgyny of Amazons and that they're sort of made manly to be warriors and that kind of thing. Yeah. So Amazons, like, you know, Marston didn't make them up. Right. Um, in the comics version, and this, I'm, I'm drawing more on the Mike Madrid book. So in the original comics, which is different from the movie and it's different from the Greek myths... Uh, what Marston wrote was that Ares and Aphrodite sort of are arguing, and Ares is saying sort of might makes right, and Aphrodite decides to create the Amazons to be loving and peaceful and sort of set in opposition to this might might makes right idea, Uh, which is kind of fun. It's a little bit like the divine wager at the beginning of the book of Job in the Mm -hmm. Hebrew scriptures, which the Christian church uses as the Old Testament. So like in the beginning of Job, God is holding court in heaven and... Ha-Satan, a Hebrew word which means the adversary, which is where we, we get the name Satan, right? Satan. Um, ha means the, so the Satan, the adversary, which kind of means the prosecutor comes to God and says, uh, like, you know, your servant Job's certainly pious, but Job's got a great life. Why wouldn't he love you, God? Like, I bet if I go down there and afflict him, like, he'll he'll curse you instead of blessing you. And God sort of says, I'll take that bet. You're going to regret because Job's the best there ever was. Yeah. And the devil goes down to <laughs> the land of ooze. <laughs> he was willing to make a deal. Anyway, um, all of this is in scripture. If you look it up, it's exactly how it is. Um, it does start, Job does start with once there was in the land of ooze, a man, Job by name. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very like fairy tale right, right. In, in the Hebrew. So anyway, uh, Ares and Aphrodite arguing that way is, is sort of the same philosophical stake, right? Like who, like 
what what's really going to win out? Might makes right or love and peace. Right. Um, so Aphrodite makes the Amazons. Ares sends Hercules to infiltrate them. He like seduces Hippolyta because yeah. Hercules. Because that's that's is that one of his twelve labors? I think I think it's like an adaptation revision of it. I, I mean certainly. Look that up too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he like steals a magic girdle from her, which I think maybe the original Hercules myth. Um, you know, incorporated in. But basically, in the comic version, uh, Aphrodite bails out Hippolyta, sets all the Amazons free, gets them to, like, steal men's boats and sail to... Number nine on the 12 labors of Hercules is obtain the girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. Okay, so that's a real incorporation. Yeah. yeah, From actual, like, Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. So uh, they sail off to Paradise Island, uh, which will be their new home under Aphrodite's, like, sort of mercy and and liberation of them from Ares, right? Which is a little exodus. uh, Themyscira, which is the name... Right of Paradise Island uh, was or is a real place. Like I don't, I think it's a town. I don't think it's huh. an island, but it's definitely like based off of a real yeah, right, right uh, city, ancient city. Don't doesn't exist anymore. But I think Herodotus it exists maybe, but like behind a secret invisible force field. Yes. So yes. anyway, there, there's a couple <laughs> of theories we have. Um, but yeah, so the Amazons set up camp on Paradise Island, but the rules are, number one, no man's allowed there anymore because Hercules. And so if if a man ever sets foot on it, then it breaks the charm of immortality that they all have. And rule number two, they all have to wear the bracelets of submission. Can you hear the capitals? Um, The bracelets of submission. So, you know, Wonder Woman with her bracers, um, like it's intentionally supposed to evoke submission in the like Marston kind of way. And then, you know, so this is the backstory of the Amazons. Uh, Wonder Woman herself is the daughter of Hippolyta. So Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and sort of a warrior goddess as well in Greek mythology. Goddess of war and wisdom. Um, She shows up and teaches Hippolyta how to make a daughter out of clay, and then Aphrodite breathes life into her. So her her lineage is from the goddesses of um, love and of war and wisdom, as well as having her mother, Hippolyta. So three parents, maybe a Marston thing. Yeah. Um, And, uh, like, again, like, warfare, but also wisdom and love. And, of course, like, breathing life into clay is also the creation story in Genesis 2. God creates Adam, which means earth thing, or, like, earth being, or clay thing, or something in in the Hebrew, like, Adam. Uh, and so God breathes life into Adam, and the Hebrew word for breath is the same word for spirit, uh, and I think it's the same word for wind as well, and that's definitely true in Greek. Yeah. So this is a very ancient world idea, um, and Wonder Woman comes to life by it too. Yes. So um, she grows up there. Uh, later, Steve Rogers, comma, American pilot. Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor. Shoot, <laughs> I'm going to do that all episode. Steve Trevor. <laughs> Um, Steve Rogers, of course, is Captain America, same time period, like World War yeah, one too. to two, uh, kind of fighter. Yeah. Anyway, Steve, not Rogers, crashes, and he's Man, like... two first names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's killed, uh, he's killed somehow, either in the crash or by his injuries, and Diana, like, carries him to a magic, like, re-life machine. Oh. Uh, like, the purple ray of not being dead anymore. Um, <laughs> because the Amazons have that. And, uh... Yes, they do. So she, she like, carries him. So, you know, no, no man's foot. foot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and brings him back to life. And 
uh, Athena and Aphrodite show up and tell Hippolyta, like, that, you know, this, this man's intrusion has, like, made them aware that, like, they need to send their best Amazon warrior back out to America, which is the last citadel of democracy and... Uh, it, it's something like and women's equality or equal oh, rights for women. Too soon. Hits me right in the heart. Friends, it was a different time it back was. in 1940. You've got to understand. <laughs> oh, okay. Gonna mourn. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll take yeah. a we'll take a pause and then edit it out of, yeah. of Megan crying for 30 <laughs> minutes. But yeah. Okay. Continue. So. Um, yeah, anyway, obviously what happens is, you know, Hippolyta tells Diana, you can't play in the contest, and Diana puts a mask on, and uh, lo and behold, wins the thing, and goes off, flying Steve Trevor back in her invisible Amazonian jet, because they also have that technology. Because yeah. it was the 1940s, guys. Right. So Amazons could have purple life rays and invisible Digital jets. Lights, yeah. yeah. Um, so back they go and uh, start their adventures. So that's the origin story. Um, she gets, you know, lots of different stories. There's a lot of, like, initial love stories with Steve, Trevor. Um, she has a sidekick that she sort of rescues and then later is rescued by. Yeah. So in the film, uh, Etta Candy is... Uh, She's somebody's secretary. Steve Trevor's... She seems to be his, like... Assistant. Assistant of some kind, uh, yeah. Which is interesting because her original um, role in the comics was as Wonder Woman's best friend. And she was sort of, like she is in the movie, um, a fuller-figured woman. Um, but what was interesting is that Marston wrote her to be sort of a vivacious, full-figured woman who is proud of her body. Um, yeah. And, yes, she's in contrast to Diana's more athletic, svelte bombshell look but like Edda was confident and sexy and awesome but later her story um in the like silver age and bronze age wonder woman uh they make her really insecure she gets an eating disorder and that's something that i really I mean, first of all makes me very angry and secondly i'm disappointed in the movie that they like she's not like frumpy or but they definitely set her in contrast and not a necessarily ideal way uh, I, to it, Diana. It seems like she's she's not exactly resentful of Diana, but she's a little cynical about her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, she's got spectacles, and now she's not the most beautiful woman you've ever right, seen. Right, she's, like, like, very... Of course, like, and that's the other thing, too. The movie takes place in World War One when the original comic was World War Two. And I think she um, came out, like, punching Nazis from day one. Yeah, like, yeah. and so, mm -hmm. like, the fact that she's just sort of a little mild... Um, I, I don't think they did Etta Candy yeah. justice. Yeah. Um, also, fun fact, in later comics, uh, Etta Candy and Steve Trevor get married. Right, um, yeah. It, so. Wonder Woman gets rebooted a couple times, yeah. and, and at least in one of the versions, yeah, Steve and Etta are the item, yeah. and Wonder Woman kind of stands alone, and I think she, I think that might be like an arc in which they play her as the love interest to Superman right. rather than having Lois Lane be that person. Yeah. And, yeah. So anyway, that was just a fun, like, interesting rabbit hole I went down of yeah. Candy. Yeah, I'm going to just... in fact love Candy, apparently, that was... Right, yeah, they they have fun with her. Apparently, she like literally has a box of candy all the time and like smacks. Yeah, the what, there's it. a storyline where she goes into a uh, infiltrates a concentration camp and rescues a bunch of children armed only with candy. Yeah, yeah, she kind of like badass. Golden Age out of candy is like yeah. this badass, like large and in charge and loving it. Yeah, and, yeah. and I just been disappointed to learn that she 
did not uh, did not continue on that trajectory because women have to be self conscious about their weight instead of just accepting of it. I, I've got to say the the Mike Madrid book has amazing again it's just called Super Girls mm-hmm. and it has amazing chapters about the the different roles of like female heroine well of heroines yeah. through the comics like decade by decade and they kind of match up like the the way they're drawn. One of the things they say about Wonder Woman is she was drawn almost like more boyishly and with mm-hmm. like flapper kind of um, aesthetics instead of like a voluptuous athletic yeah. woman with a lot of leg and like silk and stuff. And yeah. Um, I think he called it a bee sting mouth at some point. Apparently the first uh, yeah. artist that worked on her was like 61 year old guy who like was, was kind of with Marston and not needing to like sexualize her yeah. in a lot of ways. So yeah. like good for them early yeah. on. But yeah, I, I really want to recommend the Mike Madrid book. It, it talks about like, heroines kind of originally as like debutantes like living their liberated life only in their costume which is a very batman thing yeah. like he, he makes the connection yeah. right like batman's the guy who's got a playboy frivolous identity on the male side yeah but like all the early super heroines had that kind of thing going on and then like later they they sort of get downgraded to like partners or girlfriends um when when the Marvel formula comes out in like the '60s, you know it's it's sort of Sue Richards, the Invisible Woman, first, and like there's always a like token female team member who's in love with the leader and trying to like get him to marry so that she can retire from the team, and like their powers are always yeah. like infiltration, spy, like, and then they get caught and the boys have to come rescue them, kind of. So yeah. like it, it was interesting because like DC is is sort of considered the weaker of the major studios between them and Marvel. Marvel, but like DC's uh, treatment of women is a lot stronger consistently than but even Wonder Woman got downgraded a secretary yeah. for the Justice League. Come on. <laughs> well, so the Madrid book addresses that. And so number one, the, the Marston and the Wonder Woman movie plays that off a little bit as like uh, Elizabeth Marston when they've lost their university jobs because their scandal gets out. Like she she gets a job as a secretary and sort of says like what's wrong with being a secretary? Or, or Marston later says what's wrong with being a secretary and um and anyway like so so there's a little bit of a like layer there but the other thing is what what the Madrid book Supergirl says is Marston like when, when he was invited to include her into the Justice Society of America uh he declined because he was working on three other like comic titles that she was in and he he wanted full creative control and didn't have time for a fourth mm. Uh, and so she she would sort of be in part ways as a secretary who would like be there but not like written into every adventure because he didn't have the time to like and, and he wasn't willing to let go yeah and he died in like 1947 so this is pretty early stuff yeah. um I also like another fun trivia bit from that book is apparently they changed the name from Justice Society to Justice League when they rebooted it because society sounded too like hoity toity Bruce <laughs> Wayne and like the League was a little more like common yeah. people and um, anyway. Yeah. So that's a lot about like origin stories and how, how she went through the years. Maybe a, I think another big topic we want to cover is. Out of the recent Gal Gadot movie, some people think it's pronounced Gadot, but definitely not me, and we definitely didn't just edit out a big section where I called her <laughs> that, and then tried to make a waiting for Gadot joke. Yeah. Um, but in the Gal Gadot, <laughs> the Gal Gadot version, uh, there's, there's a big theme about love, right? Like, at the end of the movie, she's sort of saying, like, now I know only love can save the world. Um, which goes back to the original, like, I'm a hero of love and peace yeah. thing. Uh, so we thought we'd talk a little bit about, like, theologies of love. 
because I guess love as romance isn't always like the core of a theology, right? Like yeah. a, of the virtues that people put forward. But there's some places where it is. So, so I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Have been for most of my life now, and he famously wrote a book, The Four Loves, where he talks about. So the Greek words are storge, philia, eros, and agape. And storge is like the sort of empathic love, um, love of family, love of people that you're close to. I would say like even like work camaraderie would would be a storge, right? Yeah. um, He says liking someone through the fondness of familiarity. Yeah. Family members or people who relate in a familiar way. Um, Sort of bonded by chance. Hmm. Uh, Philia is friend bond. And he sometimes describes this as like the most kind of perfect love because um, it's the least biological, um, it's the least natural of loves. Like it's totally, like we don't need friendship to survive. Hmm. Um, Sort of like, uh, or to reproduce, um, sort of like in Dead Poet Society when he says like, you know, science, et cetera, are things that we need to live, but poetry, art, that's what makes living worthwhile that's a terror they should probably yeah. find that quote uh so friendship is like this really profound love and then eros is romantic love you know being in love um and then agape is unconditional god love and then the other thing he talks a lot about is like loving your enemies and what that really means for christians and it's not like having a fondness for somebody like you don't have to like somebody to love them but loving someone is wishing the best for them, um, wanting them to be better than they are. And I found a quote here that I can actually read. So this is from Mere Christianity. He says, We must try to feel about our enemy as we feel about ourselves, to wish that he were not bad, to hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, to wish his good. This is what is meant in the Bible by loving him, wishing his good, not feeling fond of him, nor saying he is nice when he is not. And I admit that this means loving people who have nothing lovable about them. But then, has oneself anything lovable about it? You love it simply because it is yourself. God loves us, intends us to love all selves in the same way and for the same reason. But he has given us the sum ready worked out on our own case to show us how it works. We have then to go on and apply the rule to all the other selves. Perhaps it makes it easier if we remember that is how he loves us. Not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, but just because we are the things called selves. For really, there is nothing else in us to love. Creatures like us who actually find hatred such a pleasure that to give it up is like giving up beer or tobacco. Yeah, right. I say this as I'm literally drinking a beer. Uh, um, but not but yeah, I think, drinking like, tobacco. That's, like, who grows up? But I think that's what Marston wanted is, like, Wonder Woman represents this ult- wanting the ultimate good. Yeah. Out of humanity, out of her foes. And I, I've got to say, like, I, I kind of hate this, like, I, I'm just now making this connection, mm-hmm. but I, I do think there's a case to be made that she's showing a version of agape love mm-hmm. in the Wonder Woman movie because the movie presents her as not wanting to, like, fight or kill Germans, but wanting to destroy the source of war so that right. the Germans, like everyone else, will be set free. Yeah. And, and the movie does have, I owe a guy named John Adams, who's a priest in Nebraska, an apology, because I didn't think this scene was in the movie. Okay. I missed it. I blinked the first time. But there is a scene at the end when she's killed Ares, when the German soldiers kind of take their masks off and, like, are clearly sort of befuddled as yeah. to why they were fighting, too. And anyway. Right. 
Um, but I, I think that's a bit of an agape moment. Like she, she kind of has, um, she, she has created the better for the side that she's not participating yeah. with because she's with the Americans and the British, yeah. even though like they're, they're all sort of outside the right. national so, like, bounds. So and, Lewis talks about loving your enemy. He's not saying you have filial love or empathetic or right. storge love. You have agape love. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. You want better for them than, mm-hmm. Um, there's an inter- so these are real Greek like distinctions, and one interesting moment uh, from the Christian gospel. So in the, in the Gospel of John, there's a moment where Jesus is talking to Peter, Simon Peter, uh, like Simon who Jesus renamed Peter, which means rock, right? Like Petros, petri- petrified kind of stuff. Like Jesus literally had a, had a disciple named Rocky, like n- Jesus gave him the <laughs> nickname Rocky, right? Uh, so Jesus is having a conversation with, uh, with Rocky and <laughs> says to him, um, Simon, do you love me more than uh, others or more than these? And uh, Jesus uses the word agape. Do you agape me more than these? And, and Peter says back, well, I filio you, Jesus. I, I have filia for you. Um, and Jesus says, feed my sheep. Like, that's the instruction at the, as a result of this moment. And then Jesus says to him for a second time, do you agape me? And Peter says back, I filio you. Uh, and Jesus says, tend my lambs. Uh, and then Jesus asks him a third time. And in the third time, Jesus says, do you filio me? Do you, like, Jesus switches the verb to the one Peter's been using. And, and it's a little bit of a downgraded kind of love, right? I mean, not that there's anything wrong with... Uh, friendship, love, and again, C.S. Lewis thinks very highly of it, yeah. and there's lots to recommend it, right? We, we love our friendships. But Jesus, like, is, not, is no longer, by the third time, inviting Peter to, like, confess agape for him. Mm-hmm. And Peter, and there's even a line that says, like, in, in the gospel, and, and the gospels do not often describe people's feelings or motivations. Yeah. And it says, like, Peter was hurt that Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And when you read it in English, like, it doesn't make the same sense, no. right? P- Peter's, I don't think I ever knew that this like Peter was heard that Jesus yeah. said to him the fir- third time, do you love me? But it's saying a different word in Greek. Lost right? in translation, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, G- Peter says, do you know that I phileo you? And Jesus, I think Jesus says the third time, like feed my lambs again, right? So, um, so it's an interesting, like, there's plenty of ways to take that. Like, is Jesus meeting Peter where he is? Is Peter is Jesus reminding Peter in some way of the three denials, right? Like, on the third denial, like, three strikes and you're out. Yeah. Um, because Jesus had foreknowledge that baseball would someday exist. Like, <laughs> what, what exactly is going on here? <laughs> Um, but that bit of Greek, like, it, it's a, it, like, these words are, are powerful yeah. and they're useful. Yeah. Never knew that. Yeah. So there's plenty of other, like, uh, theology of love kind of stuff. Again, like, I I think the place where love features most prominently in Christian theology is the greatest commandments, which is Luke 10, 25 plus. Um, And it's also the place where we get the story of the Good Samaritan. Like, a a lawyer asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus Jesus actually makes the lawyer say it. He says, like, well, what do you think it is? Or what do you hear when you read scripture? And the guy says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Uh, there's other places where Jesus himself says the commandments, you know, the greatest commandment is this, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you know, the lawyer may have heard Jesus say that before and, like, is repeating it, whatever. And and then the lawyer sort of wants to justify himself and says, like, well, but who's my neighbor? 
And I, you know, I think we're meant to take that a little cynically, like that the lawyer is just trying to save face, but Jesus takes it earnestly or treats it earnestly and tells the parable of the good Samaritan and Samaritans were the religious like enemies of the Jews at that time. And, and like, you know, vice versa. And so by using a Samaritan as an example of somebody being merciful and making the lawyer say, well, the one who showed mercy is the one who behaved like a neighbor. Jesus is kind of breaking the the bounds of like tribe makes right. And also, um, with the good Samaritan, it's, I don't know why I say it's lost on it, but sometimes like I forget the significance of it too, is not only is the Samaritan sort of the quote enemy, but the Samaritan's the one that's actually breaking the law by helping the man because you have the priest and the Levite who go by who don't help because if they help him, the injured man, like they're going to get contaminated. They'll be unpure. Right. Uh, law law in terms of like the holiness code, the Jewish law. He's going to be unclean uh and they have to uh, go through a purification ritual. Also, So they pass by on the other side following the law. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Samaritan actually breaks the law that uh, religious law right. to help the man. So I think like that's something which, which matches moment like Jesus breaks right, the yes, law. Like yes. Jesus heals on the Sabbath yes. and and gets it's similarly kind of challenged Jesus for thing. it. Like, yeah, exactly. That, like law is the, the religious law is important, but it's not everything because loving God and loving neighbor are actually yeah the, right the more important commandments. Yeah, we are. Uh, I mean, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID quarantine. Yeah. Uh, well. Let's hope it's the middle. It is. Or maybe, yeah. It's April. It, like, it started. Yeah. Um, and, and anyway, like, I, I am literally using the example of Jesus healing on the Sabbath with my congregation frequently to remind people, like, even Jesus, like, stopped ritual observance when it meant, pe- when, when it meant saving people's lives. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. So, yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, so love is definitely around. Uh, I think... I. I I, I looked into some, there's some great stuff in Augustine of Hippo who talks about like love as a virtue. Uh, he relates it to um, like all kinds of virtues. Um, there's sort of famously four virtues in uh, like classical Greek philosophy, like from Plato and things, um, temperance and prudence and fortitude and justice. And like Augustine has places in his theology where he lays out how each of those is a kind of love. In art history, like they, those get tied to the four humors. And so like in art history, I need to, I would need to verify this before I start talking out of turn. The, anyway, there, there's the four virtues that are classical Greek virtues, and uh, Augustine of Hippo ties those, uh, well, Augustine of Hippo doesn't tie those, but those get connected with the three, uh, what are called the th- three theological virtues in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and Paul's sort of hymn to love. This is used at weddings a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Love is patient, love is kind, it bears all yeah. things, it endures all things, it, it kind of on. And then at the end of it, it says, uh, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Um, and anyway, th- those are called the, the three theological virtues, and the Greek ones are called the cardinal virtues, and they get put together to make a set of seven because... You know, classical philosophy and ancient world number theory liked the idea of seven as as sort of a perfect number, matching things like the days of creation. Yeah. And I think one other just fun scripture reference is the whole, like, no one has greater love than this than he laid down his life for his friends from John 15 about Jesus. Uh, What's kind of fun there is that idea of, like, love as being a willingness to sacrifice yourself for others, which is, like everywhere in hero movies, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, 
we, we can get into the actual like Wonder Woman movie a little bit here. Sure. So it, it's kind of, I think it's probably got three acts, like in a very common movie yeah. kind of way. Um, and the first one is like fun, like origin story. It's beautiful. They're on Paradise Island kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, it's a little bit of like, I heard that Pixar uses this formula with their movies of like start a story with every day, you know, blank happens. One day, blank happens. Mm, and gotcha. so you've got a little bit of like every day, Diana trains with the Amazons. And then one day, Steve, Steve Trevor, Trevor falls out of the sky. sky. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it's a little bit similar to the comics, and there's ways that it's different. Yeah. So we get the... Her origin story is a little bit different. You get um, Hippolyta tells her this like beautifully animated... I guess it's a flashback, but it's a story. She's telling a story, and yeah. you get this animation. Um, it's very Baroque, Mannerist um, style, which I quite liked. Um, and there's this like God Slayer prophecy that... Um, I can't remember all the details of it, but it's similar to what we talked about before of like, there's this battle on Ares and then they create the Amazons and the Amazons fight Ares. Like everyone fights Ares. Everybody fights Ares. Yeah. Um, so I they get... In the first battle, like the gods fight Ares and he kills them all, but Zeus sort of uses his last power to like cripple Ares. Yeah. Anyway, the Amazons get sent to Paradise Island, the Mascara. Every time I always hear it as the mascara, and I can't not think that. <laughs> now I no one else can unhear that. I know. So every time I have to stop and like say it correctly, and then our promise, like Zeus promises them a weapon, like the God Slayer. Which, spoiler alert: it's not a sword. <laughs> yeah, there's this whole like, let's go see it, and Hippolyta shows her like right, a really like sharp a shrine, sword. There's yeah. like a sword, and there's the. I guess it's like the girdle. It's like her yeah. chest plate, uh-huh. and I guess I keep the lasso there. Yeah, they've got like an armory yeah. of. There's just a little divine sh- toys. It's a museum <laughs> of weaponry, and Diana wants to learn to fight. Hippolyta's like, no, you don't need to learn to fight, um, but she does anyway with her aunt and Piope, yeah. played by played by Robin Wright, Princess Buttercup herself, who got sick and tired of being in movies where guys do all the things. Right. And, yeah. Well, what I love, I do think I also actually really loved about this movie that I noticed this time around was I mean, of course all the women are beautiful and very like um, athletic athletic and they're I mean, just very um, conventionally attractive women but they're immortal like you could have easily cast 20 something women playing immortal goddesses but in you know 20 something bombshells instead they cast 50 something bombshells as Hippolyta and Antiope yeah and I am here for that like <laughs> let's give more older actresses sexy badass fighting roles I I applaud that anyway yeah that was just something I noticed that definitely worthwhile stood out. yeah um, so then Diana gets trained she's got her bracers on. Yeah, they uh, never once call them bracelets of submission nope, in the movie. Nope. They don't actually refer to them at all. She just happens yeah. to be wearing them from childhood on to yeah. adulthood. So they're training, and is there like a special occasion that they're doing, or she's she's like showing her worth, like she gets to like. Well, there's there's kind of like uh, for a long time, Hippolyta's resisting allowing Diana to be trained, and yeah. like there's all these sort of like I mean, it's almost soap operatic of right. like. We, we could train her, but then she'd know more of her terrible secret. Terrible I mean, like, secret. I, yeah. or like, the more she knows, the more danger she's in. I mean, right. like, yeah. and, and, you know, knowing the punchline that, like, she's the god slayer and Ares will try to come and destroy her. And, yeah. you know, there's destiny and blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it, it seems like 
very soap operatic. Yeah. The second time through, it was but, great. It, the first time through, yeah. and and it's fine. Like it, whatever you love right. the movie. It's a movie, like yeah. You got You got a mood story. Um, but so Hippolyta but, tries to stop her training, uh-huh. and she's like starts doing it in secret with Antiope, and then finally, like Hippolyta gives in, like yeah. acknowledges her destiny, and and so she's doing this like big, sort of, training battle test, um, and she crosses the bracers, and big energy wave, energy wave yeah. comes in her, and then she's like, oh no, what have I done? And goes off to, like, have her moment on the cliff overlooking the sea. And what should happen? But <laughs> this is my thinking place. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is where I go to be alone. Yeah. And then a handsome man falls from the sky. Yeah. Literally. Although, and, I, and, and she rescues him. And a wonderful thing about the movie is they don't, like, clobber you with exposition. And so, like, no other Amazon does this at any point. Like, yeah. presumably it's a Godslayer magic princess. Oh, Diana the thing. Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she does it to Ares at the very end. Like that's that's sort of how she topples him in the last battle. Right. Is he like? But you think like, there uh, there's some continuity where I'm like, you knew you could do that, and you didn't. Well, but she sort of seems surprised by it, and then she immediately gets distracted by like having to jump into battle. Rescue and, a handsome yeah. man who makes yeah. your brain go to mush. I guess. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know that he ever does though. I I no. think the like rescue with no, Steve stuff is great because it's she's very... always portrayed as like in charge of her mind yes, and body. Yes, that's actually true. And like I always love when. Um, tropes get turned on their head so like i'm yeah. just teasing this mansell in distress mansell in distress <laughs> i love it okay the other trope they turn on its head is the situationally undressed woman yes. right which goes back to at least like george and mary and it's a wonderful life yep. where she like slips oh, goes, her robe and falls in a bush it goes and... back to herodotus like <laughs> uh, yeah, candles sure. and gyges and poor gyges's wife candles uh, I think Candelise's wife, because Gaijis is the one that can turn yes, invisible in yes. the other so men. Yes, yeah. wife, who doesn't have a name as far as I know. Uh, of course, I only know the story. Thank God she married Candelise, or her name really wouldn't have made sense. <laughs> <laughs> Going through life that way. are the way. English patient. Um, that's how I know the story. Uh, though I have actually read the Herodotus histories. Yeah. Um, I just don't remember exactly. Anyway, there's a situationally... Yes, where... Yeah. That's not really situationally undressed, though. No, that's like, but it's like... That's like Candelise says to Gaiji's, hey, my hot wife gets undressed, right. and I'm watch like, her. let's make a situation where yeah. you watch her. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm uh, just telling you, women being naked... Right, and being gazed on by men. And gazed on by men goes back to the dawn of time. Yeah. Because you can even argue Adam and Eve, like, oh, I ate the apple. Yeah. Naked. Did you know that we are naked and naughty? Goes back to the dawn of time. Adam and Eve, all of that. Yeah. Um, and, um... He saw her bathing from the roof. Um, oh, David and David Bathsheba. And Bathsheba, right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course she was taking a bath right there in the main. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so she rescues Steve. Battle ensues with Germans who have now found the mascara. Yeah. Many Amazons die. Antiope dies. Very sad. And it's, it's interesting. I didn't really think this through, like, literally until today, but in, like... They never state that the island is protected by a charm of immortality that can be broken if a man sets foot on it. But, like, Steve Trevor, like, well, he's, like, lying on the beach on it. And then yeah. Germans set foot on it. Right. And, actually, I think the gunshot that kills somebody happens before the Germans land. But that Steve's foot is on so, the island yeah. before an Amazon dies. Yeah. So, in theory, they could be using, like, comic continuity rather than just, like, updating them to be, like warrior women who grew up like where she grew up normally or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah in, in, in this one what's interesting <laughs> i guess is like if in the comics athena and aphrodite are the ones like that give diana or well give hippolyta a mission to send an amazon to be an ambassador of peace and love to the world in this one steve is the one who basically says like 
the world needs saving. I've got to go back. And Diana's like own moral inklings, like, and her sense that the destiny of the Amazons is to kill Ares, sort of tell her that she has to go help him. And And so so she's like, we have this sword. Like, Steve, it's great. It's been called the God Slayer. I'm going to go take it with me. Yeah. Turns out she is God Slayer. But, and I actually think, so I think one of the weird things going on in the movie is like, there's a way in which it almost seems like Diana's got a bunch of Greek myths with sort of myth punned on as both like our creation, like, Mm -hmm. like our history and religion and tradition, but also like falsehoods, right? Like people have lied to her. Her mom has lied to her. Yeah. Um, about who she is along right. with everything else. And so, like, Steve winds up kind of re-educating Diana about, like, the moral world. And, and, like, some things he gets right and some things he gets wrong. And by the end of the film, like, he's he's sort of said, like, you know, like, I, I, it, you have to make a choice. You have to do something or do nothing. And I tried doing nothing and it didn't work, so I'm going to yeah. do something. And, like, I choose to believe in love. And, like, by the end, she's in love with him. And they've had Eros love along the way, right, in a town that they saved. And, yeah. like, you know, she sees him blow up in a plane and decides love's going to save the world. And so, like, there's a way in which he's, like, sort of breaking her naivete and, like, teaching her about the quote-unquote real world, man's world. But she's also supposed to be the person that's, like, going forth to transform real world, man's world. Yeah. And, and I guess I'm not sure those two things work together outside of the, like comic book framework where Aphrodite and Athena are in charge of sending love and wisdom yeah. like in a man's world because if, if everything Diana knows is fake like what exactly is she bringing and if the love that she's come to believe in is like taught by a personal romance that's not agape and even though she kills Eros like or, or kills uh, Ares like along the way there's also this sort of idea that like the hearts of human beings, the hearts of men, um, are are just naturally given over to conflict. And Ares himself says that, yeah, like both to sort of taunt Diana, but also like he's on, he's like bound by the lasso of truth. Truth when he says like I I didn't even have to force them. Like I just kind of gave them some tools along the way, and they they were perfectly happy to kill each other. Yeah. So 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 I think there's a little bit like part of my like my my dissatisfaction with the film is it feels a little bit distant from the Marston version of like love, love and peace are here to stand in contrast to like meeting out justice with your fists. And, and then particularly because at the end of the movie, she kills Ares. Right. And, and I mean like, like Thanos and Avengers Endgame and other places where this happens, like it's set up as like an impossible, like she has to do it. Yeah. But I think, I, I think it's a little bit lazy. I think it's a little bit like sh- short of the the actual things that make her a hero. It's definitely not the like save by love and bind them into submission. And, and what's really frustrating, I think, is like superhero movies have done other things. Yeah. Like the the first X Men movie, like they they trap Magneto and like lock him up, and he goes, you know, they'll never keep me in here, Charles, in that plastic prison, and. I'll, I'll get out, and, you know, Patrick Stewart, Professor X, is back, like, and I'll be waiting for you, old right. friend. So, yeah. like, you know, first film out of the new, like, sort of generation of hero movies, like, yeah, we'll just capture a villain. We'll use restraint yeah, and civilization. With, they and, do the same with Loki. Like, they just lock him up. Right. Doctor Strange, Strange super fun one. ending. Yep. Yeah, we'll get into that one. So, yeah, like, I, I think there's, there's sort of some distance there. And I think Ares is sort of, I don't, I, like, I used the Milton Satan thing on the last episode, too, but I do think there's a little bit of a, like, when modern 
writers need a villain, they make them a little demonic in, in a Miltonian yeah. way. So he's sort of kind of like angry at humankind and thinks they're a pestilence. And I, I guess he doesn't have the same like sort of Zeus preferred them kind of stuff going on. But like Ares's plan, and he, he, just, he, he calls himself the god of truth, not of war. Right. And his plan is to like delete humanity, start over in a, in a perfect paradise where humans are not. And invites Diana to, like, join him there, yeah, right? Yeah, it's very Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, join me in the guys. Exactly, yeah. 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 Do you like my Darth Vader? That's a very good Darth <laughs> Vader. I, I thought James Earl Jones had joined the podcast for a moment. Right. <laughs> it's uncanny. <laughs> I, I guess we could just quickly say the other two acts of the film. Yeah. Like so she leaves Paradise Island with Steve. They have yeah. their lots of, like, teasing sexual tension jokes. Um, yeah. Sort of flipping things on their head, like... In a, I think, well done way, like poking because you gotta like poke fun at these tropes that are already there, and then like intentionally mm-hmm. um, yeah. flipping them is great. Um, and then they kind of do like a, an act two of like My Fair Lady sequences. Yeah, well, it's funny. Like Marston calls instead of like the real world or the outside mm-hmm. world, it's man's world. <laughs> Yeah, which, which I think they kept untrue. all the way through the yeah. current movie and continuity. Like, yeah. that's what they still call it. And she sort of takes on this, like, almost manic pixie dream girl. Um, which is a trope. Yeah. Of, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if that I, I think if she, if she is a trope, I think she is born sexy yesterday, yesterday yeah. as opposed to manic pixie yeah. dream girl. And, like, other... I, I feel like another classic... Not classic, but, like, super on-the-nose born sexy yesterday is... Um, Lilu from yeah. the Fifth Element, who who like Diana is a like powerhouse magic weapon from another civilization, like given over to Arcare, who almost loses herself, almost can't perform at the end, like when she has to stop ultimate evil, but then like recognizes love in relationship with like a flawed human yeah. man, and out, out of that love, like recovers herself, yeah, and, and performs like they, as the weapon to kill the big villain. Right, so. and what really got me kind of making that connection with Lilu is. When Diana sort of sees war for the first time, yeah, and is sort of horrified by it, yeah, um, much like when Lelou's going through all the. Well, it's not even the first. Uh, for for it, I, I think we're thinking of the same moment, maybe, but it's when the town's destroyed. Um, this would be, I think, before. It's like when they're walking towards the town and she's seeing all the refugees coming out and sort of realizing, like, this is the consequence of war. Because she's like known, yeah, maybe not directly known. Well, she has known battle once, but. She's really seeing right. the consequences, like the global scale I, of it. I would I say that distracts her, uh-huh. but I, I, um, but I. That's I the think, moment that made me think of whether or not. Well, that's fair. Yeah. I, I do think the moment where she's like most. So there's a moment where Lilu in Fifth Element like is watching a screen of human words to learn English. Yeah. Sees war, digs into it, and starts crying. Yeah. Like, why would they do this to each other? And and like it sort of breaks breaks her ability to trust humanity. And like that that's what Corbin Dallas Bruce yeah. Willis's character has to bring her back out right. of. And and I think if Diana has a moment like that, it's once the the Germans have have poison bombs the town that she saved because it's almost like a playful adventure before that. She's powerful; she can do what she wants. She can stop the violence and like make sure people are safe by protecting them and beating up the bad guys on her way to Ares, who she's going to kill to like make everyone love each other yeah. again. But then like when the Germans gas bomb the town, like she doesn't want any company, she doesn't want any companionship. Like that's when she kind of like breaks with humanity and is just yeah. going to go kill the guy, right? So I think that's maybe like the the moment where war shakes her. Mm-hmm. But before that, she's she's just sort of distractible and flighty. Like Steve's like, "Wait, we we can't stay, save everyone along the way. Like yeah. we have to go like remember the big missions Ares and and she's just sort of like 
yeah, whatever. And they, like, are marching on and don't realize, like, she left and, like, climbed out of the trench and, like, went to stop everyone. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a super cool scene. Like, all of her action is incredible. Yes. yes. Um, 100%. Yeah. So speaking of the fifth element, um, we noticed, I think you and I discussed this before, of other big comparison um, that we sort of dis- described her as Diana Skywalker. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate any more on that? Um, sure. So, I, and I guess, like, obviously, like, these comparisons don't just, like, magically appear. Like, George Lucas read, oh, yeah. you know, like, Shakespeare and Joseph Campbell and people, and so whatever. Like, obviously, like, Hero's Journey stuff just shows up. And we, we talked yeah. before, and we'll talk more about, like, the myth of the American superhero and, like, things there. But there's some, like, really on-the-nose stuff. So, like, Hippolyta, like, says to Diana early in the movie, like, uh, fighting doesn't make you a hero. And it, I, I felt like I could hear Frank Oz say, uh, wars don't make one great, yep. right? Like, which is exactly how he sounds. Don't <laughs> don't email me, guys. Um, Your Yoda is almost as good as my dark <laughs> That's right. We, we actually paid the actress to do those voices on the podcast for you guys. Big uh, bucks. So, yeah, what's some other ones? Uh, like, she leaves before her training's complete. Yeah, and, like, like Luke does from Day Yeah, in order to save others. Antiope is sort of her Obi-Wan, and she loses her early. Um, yeah, that's... Yeah. And, and we talked a little bit about that, but it's rich because, like, Antiope, like, even is sort of, like, training her in, in spite of, like, the general, like, rules about not training her in the same way that Obi-Wan and Yoda, like, have an argument of, like... You know, here's too old, too right. old to be getting trained. And we're so not much older than I was yeah. when I wasn't a blue forest ghost. And right. <laughs> yeah, like all those things. So, yeah. yeah, and then later there's stuff too. Like they, they b- both Luke and Diana get captured and tempted. Uh, and they're, I guess they're reversed for Luke. He, he's tempted in Empire and then he's captured in Jedi. Although yeah. he's tempted again at right. the end. Yeah, yeah. And, like, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this in its own episode, but, like, I think the heart of Star Wars is Luke, like, giving in to rage on the second Death Star, like, slicing off Darth Vader's arm and then seeing what he's done and throwing his lightsaber away. Yeah. And, and, like, to me, the fundamental question of Star Wars is, like, does that define Luke and a Yoda, like, once you set your foot on the path of the dark side forever, will it dominate your destiny kind of way? Or, like... Does you know, does he get to take the step back and yeah. like come back anyway? Well, I think that's where you and I sort of feel like the movie failed. Wonder Woman is like that should have been her. She should have maybe gotten to yeah. the point of like rage and outburst, but like ultimately pulled herself back and tried to save Ares. And I think they tried love. to. So the way they tried to do it, I think, is they they show her. I, I think the order of events is she gets bound up by Ares. She's mm-hmm. trapped in like she, she's she's contained by something, which yeah. is her kryptonite, right? right? She's been trapped by a man, and then she sees Steve Trevor die and blows out of the like airplane hangar that he's wrapped around or whatever, yeah. and then she like in a in a pretty bad action sequence for an otherwise beautiful movie. She just like in orange light like smashes through a bunch of Germans killing them in like a rage. So that's yeah. like cutting off Vader's arm for yeah. her. But then by the end when she actually kills him she's sort of like at peace and has a smile on her face and I'm sorry uncle but you tried to kill me with Zeus's lightning first and you're just the god of war and no good for anybody so like down you go. Yeah. And, and I think what like, like, with the Luke Skywalker version, like, he cuts off Vader's arm, throws the lightsaber away, is ready to accept that he's going to be killed for it. Right. 
And, and Vader gets redeemed by that and throws the Emperor down a Death Star chute where he has never turned into a biomechanical clone by anyone ever. Nope, that didn't happen. So, you know, th- there's a little bit of, like, having it both ways that happens, I think, in both movies, but somehow the order of operations sits better with me with Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Par- partly, I think, because he doesn't become the executioner. Right. It's a little easier, I guess, to buy Vader on his way back to being a good person, like, happened to throw one more guy down a Death Star, and this time the guy deserved it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Then, like, Diana, who's, you know, fought in war, but, like, sort of repudiated war as she was doing it, yeah. decides, well, I just smashed a bunch of Germans, and I'm sort of recovered. Well, spaceless Germans. So yeah, they don't have their masks off yet, yeah. so it doesn't count. And then Ares apparently ha- now has Zeus's lightning and, like, tries to kill her with it. So it's very much like bad guy shoots first, but then the good guy... Survives it and shoots second, yeah. right? Sorry, Han Solo. Right. Uh, and they do both, like, say bye to a relative, I think is the last little, like, cherry on top. Yeah. I mean, uh, Luke, you know, Luke says bye to his dad, and then Ares is sort of an uncle because, like, part of his big secret reveal is, like, also, you're Zeus's daughter and not right. just breathed and into a play, like, which... Yeah. What, what uh, work did that do for them? Right. Not related to the great themes of things, but I also just had a hard time with David Zulis as the big bad... Because he's Professor Lupin, and I love him. Yeah, right. It's yeah. So it hurt my heart. It was the perfect disguise. It was. I, de- <laughs> I literally didn't see it coming. Yeah, I feel like it was uh, better. Tele- like there was more telegraphing than I realized. And yeah, definitely. like I think the second he shows up there in the place, you're like, oh, it's you. Yeah. Like because like, the I, war hasn't I think stopped. I, and... The first time watching it through, I knew Danny Houston's character like was too obvious. I don't know that I saw Lupin. Just I'm like, he's Lupin. I think I had a moment of wondering whether it was Dr. Poison. Yeah. Like, were they going to set up, like, a female battle? Right. But, like, she's also her own villain from the comics, so they wouldn't have needed that. Um, Although, you know, they do weird stuff with with the New Worlds. Yeah. Yeah, and and it was a little, like, I mean, he was always, like, sniffing, like, magic strength pills that Ares wouldn't have needed. So. Yeah. So that's a lot about the film, including some of our, like, philosophical takes. Like, I, I I like it. I think, gosh, things to say. Number one, like, Wonder Woman is a movie. So, um, I th- one more quick comparison, but, like, uh, literally two weeks before this came out, um, a different movie with a lot of the same plot elements came out, which was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, number one, like, I, I think I, I think Guardians pulls up, uh, like, a really cool point about Wonder Woman, which is... Guardians is a book about a flying raccoon in a tree with, like, a crazy space <laughs> jock from Earth with 80s music, right? Like, yes. the, Guardians is not serious. No, Everyone knows you're going to watch spectacle and comedy and slapstick and, like, making fun of the superhero genre. And it's going to be bright and colorful and yeah. a little bit raunchy and a little and bit violent. Music. Right, with cool score. Yeah, so, like, it is so lighthearted. It is so easy to make something enjoyable, like... I'm sure it is a treat to work on a Guardians film. And, like, so of those two movies, like, I definitely enjoyed Guardians better. Uh, And I, like, at at the end of it, like, Star-Lord has killed his divine father who wants to create a universe where they're the only things there, right? Which is exactly what Ares wants Diana to do. I, I think what's amazing about it is, like, I like that movie, and I sort of, number one, you sort of don't mind him blowing up his dad because it's a weird, like, planet intelligence, like, cosmic thing. Yeah. Like, it's sort of a natural force in a way that Ares 
by being so personified, seems less like. And they do a lot more fun work with, like, who his real dad is, right. with Yondu. Um, you know, and there's this sort of, like, you only get one. Like, there's he might have been your father, but I'm your daddy. Yeah, and, like, yeah. and you're telling me this as you're freezing in space? Right, like, oh, no, no but at least you get terrible. colorful fireworks. Oh, yeah. And, breaks the heart. <laughs> I, I know, like, that, that tugged in my heart, yeah. right? Um, well, both of them have this very, like, kind of biblical thing of, you know, Jesus being tempted in the desert of, like, I can give you all this power, I can give you the Yeah, bow and worship me, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of them reject that. So. And I, I think part of what it is, is um, Star-Lord rejects his dad's offer. He says, like, if you, if you don't become divine like me and blow up all of their life in the universe, like, you're going to be just like everybody else. Yeah. And he says, and what would be wrong with that? Right. Which, which feels solid right like that's very much who he is we're, we're with diana the whole like love can save the world i've chosen to believe it she's just lost her love like she doesn't have a history of being trained for love she was trained for, like it, it feels a little less consistent yeah now i think the big point to make about this is if a guardian movie has no pressure on it to perform wonder woman has all the pressure right right oh 100 so yeah. like the f- first female headline film like DC itself, like, has been struggling to make, like, movies that audiences delight in. Yeah. And, like, for decades, she was the only heroine who had a, a title that, like, was still hers and stayed hers. Um, and and uh, one, one of the things from that Mike Madrid book, again, was that she, she survived some of the transitions because she wasn't, like, a sex kitten. Yeah. Um, and so when they were like, you know, the comics morality codes were all being put into place, like, she, she like, you know, could limbo under the bar or, yeah. or not limbo because the limboing girls were surely gone or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just worth saying that, right? Like Wonder Woman, like had a lot of, pre- like it was always going to be critiqued as, is it feminist enough? Is it not feminist enough? Like, you know, is she just like a male hero? Was she supposed to be like a male hero? And, and I think like on top of that, like the, the character is supposed to embody so much that like, she can't just be like everybody else in a lovable way at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, and they're also grounding her in like actual history instead of space fantasy. So like, there's all these sort of like, wait, Ares died, but there was World War Two. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of some of the things where like the I guess we continuity of okay, she just ended war. She like intervened. She stopped World War One. Stopped Ares. Isn't that great? But like, where was she for Hitler? Come on, yeah, lady. Like. Yeah. So I think that was, and that's a weird setup because she was written to as a World War II hero, heroine, hero, right, hero. right? Like she literally, she and Edda were fighting Nazis, and mm. then so like, I don't have a problem with them changing it to World War One, but then it just like implies that like where was she? Did she just stop working? And then, and I didn't see Justice League, so I'm not sure what happens there. Yeah. But you know, at the end of Wonder Woman, she's like working at the Louvre, like she's working at a museum. As a museum professional, that's a small world. You can't hide within that field. Um, so I don't really understand. <laughs> that is a very unique critique. Yes, of the movie. it's like watching Ghostbusters two and Sigourney Weaver suddenly a conservator, and I just you know. Like, yeah. now, where, where did you find the time to learn virtuoso cello and conservator? Right, and have a get married and have a baby and get divorced in the span of four years. Right, right. Doesn't work that way, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. I don't care if you're Sigourney Weaver. I love you. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Um, fair, fair. But that was just like one of those like little like she can't hide out in the Louvre. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there's this weird sort of like she's she's letting man's world fend for itself, but she's also like flying off to save it at the end of the movie. Right. And although to be fair, by by the end of the Wonder Woman movie, like she's already been in, sort of enticed back into the world by the events of Justice League once, and then Bruce Wayne sent her a picture of her old time days, and so right. But that means like she was like, well, I saved the world once, and my boyfriend died. Sorry, Jews during the Holocaust, like. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna sit this one out. Like, it, it just somebody. I feel like somebody didn't think through the implications. Well, or it's just. I mean, it, it's hard to tell stories in the real world yeah. because you have to sort of set up like how much of it is the, really the real world. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they will address it in Wonder Woman 1984, sure. it, it, where I understand Steve Trevor is also appearing again. So either right. flashbacks or time travel or what. Like yeah. Fla- Flash can just run back in time and grab him and be yeah. like, "Hey, here's a guy for a while." Or maybe he really is Steve Rogers and he just got frozen. There you go. Yeah. 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 It, it all comes around. Yeah, and she does sort of like I mean the the big like come out come off of the bench and out you know onto the field in Justice League is yeah. she's like is about to get on a plane to like sneak away having stolen is the it picture back. No, it's a very visible <laughs> normal mortal plane, and and she like sees Doomsday like being it's not Justice League it's um, Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice and and she like sees that they're gonna fight doomsday and so she like breaks out to go fight doomsday with them yeah uh, that like it's the first time anyone's seen wonder woman since well at the time since world war one but who knows what the new movie says yeah. so so i think um you know wonder woman yeah. one of a number of heroes who kind of like emerges from a hidden yeah. kingdom and- to save the world and teach it something new um you've got aquaman you've got black panther we could talk about those sometime yeah. i'm sure we will yeah uh, well, i feel like I'm, as a woman, very glad to see a woman have her own superhero movie. Like, representation matters. And sometimes that, that's enough. And it's well, like, well done. Like, any critique I have, like, it's going to be something I would have of any male superhero movie. Like, I don't think she needs to be put on so high a pistol. But I think it's just disappointing, and especially in some ways, having studied her, you know, what little research we did, I feel like there's things that could have been better, um... And, like, things that they did hold true to the original um, author's intent and things that went away that I would have liked them to do differently. But ultimately, like, well done. You guys made a fun superhero movie with badass fight scenes. and Yeah. I think you know, every action sequence looks great. I mean, save maybe some of the stuff, like, where she's actually fighting Ares. I, yeah. I think there's a lot of, like, orange bad, blue good yeah. lighting and... Um, and it's just hard to do, like, a big bad fight scene because everything's been done, everything's been seen. Yeah. But, like, there, theirs looks good. Yeah. Like, um, the, the sort of bracer is blasting him back in an act of defense and shielding that shatters his authority and then, like, taking the lightning away from him and not being, like, destroyable by it. Yeah. It's, like, that that's solid stuff. Like, right. it, it shows her potency in, in good form. And, uh, again, I... It, it seems like she really could have, like, lassoed him and dragged him off to a Themyscira jail or something yeah. at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like, like that, better ways. Or um, sort of a, a Gaston, Beauty and the Beast moment where, like, he could fall to his death. He's a god. So he's yeah, that's not But, like, yeah. somehow something happens where it's yeah. not her. Right. Him, I like, mean, Gre- Green Goblin tries to kill Spider-Man and, like, Spider-Sense goes off and he jumps and the glider impales the goblin instead yeah right? it's like, not like that but you've got options. i don't know how else you kill a god yeah so, yeah, yeah i get it 
Well, uh, friends, that's Wonder Woman. We uh, we love the character. We like the movie. We don't like like the movie. Um, it's I don't agape. The we, we don't agape the movie. <laughs> we I think we storge the movie. I think that's where we are with it. <laughs> um, yes. Maybe a bit of Eros, but but yeah, we we storge the movie. I like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think we we at least phileo the character. Yeah. And there are some agape moments in there. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for joining us, and um, uh, just a quick reminder, you can email us at comicbeliefpodcast at gmail.com, and find us on Facebook under at comicbeliefpod. Yep, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at comicbeliefpod. So feel free to reach out to us with any uh, questions, comments, uh, show ideas. This episode actually was brought... Uh, to us by Ashley of Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, it was a great topic. Uh, I think she wanted us to cover Marston and the Wonder Women, so we got the film, got the origin, and definitely the big character. Yep. Until next time, believers. Yep, see you next time. Special thanks to Steve Mason of Jars of Clay for permission to use their song Hero as our intro and outro. And thanks to Joshua White for designing our logo and graphics. Uh, he can be found at www.behance.net slash joshnerd0307.